Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. And good morning, Heights family, and it's now time to start saying Merry Christmas. It's December. We just got a couple of Sundays to say this, so it's time to, to jump on it. Good to see all of you this morning. You know, in light of the uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering video we just saw, I always feel like that's a good opportunity to give you your annual Southern Baptist lesson uh, so that you understand what we're, we're doing there. So a lot of times you'll hear Southern Baptist referred to as a denomination. We're not a denomination. Southern Baptists are a collection of individual, independent churches. There's no organization over this, over this place. So we're, we're not a denomination. What Southern Baptists do is we cooperate. That's called our cooperative program. We cooperate on some things we think are important that we think we can do better together than individually. And a big one of those is world missions. And so we give, every time you give, every Sunday that you give, uh, we take a portion of that and we send it to the cooperative program. For our church, that's a couple hundred thousand dollars a year that we send. Almost half of that stays right here in Virginia to, to fund ministries and missions in our state. A little over half goes to the national organization, the National Southern Baptist. And of that little over half that goes there, one-fourth of that goes to the International Mission Board. So the biggest chunk of it goes to the International Mission Board. And that pays for the budget of that agency. That what, that's what puts missionaries on the field and keeps them on the field. It's just, it's a bare basic budget that does that. And we have all, all, a little over 4,000 missionaries, I believe, on the field right now, full-time missionaries. What the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is, while the budget puts them on the field, it doesn't fund a lot of their needs for doing ministry. Like you saw that, that lady refer to the, the water tower. That was a significant part of how she ministers to that, that village and what creates those relationships. So when we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, none of that is about budget. A hundred percent of that goes to the field, to serving the needs of these missionaries in the, in the work that they do there. And so we, we usually do this at, at Christmas time. Last year, and I, I should have looked this up before I came in here, I think we gave just a little bit more than $70,000 to the, to, yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Way to go. Way to go, you. And so uh, you'll find, I, I think you'll find, <laughs> Lottie Moon Christmas offering envelopes in the chairs in front of you. And of course, I know so many of us do our giving now through the app. And uh, you should see a Lottie Moon. You should see that as an option. So boy, it's a, I, I like taking time because it just kind of understand who we are and what this gift is about and, uh, and, and think on that right now. So also a great way to think about, hey, all the gifts were given to each other and ourselves. Man, what are we giving to Christ? And this is a great way to give a gift that serves the kingdom and the advancing of the gospel uh, around the world to all the kinds of things you just got to see there. So uh, hope you'll hope you'll th- individually as a family think about what you might want to do there uh, this Christmas season in a gift to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Also want to take just a moment and uh, share with you a little bit about what's going on with our Midlothian campus. I 
met with them. I've been meeting them with them, uh, obviously, as Buddy passed back in September. Um, met with them this past Wednesday. Account, what are our next steps and, and what are we going to be doing there? And we do have some extenuating circumstances that actually started at, at before Buddy's passing uh, that were making our, our campus there and keeping that going a little bit challenging. And uh, so, you know, we're working through what we do there, and it's kind of like the Lord pointed me to what he's already given us, and that's the vision of our church. We have a new vision that we're operating by. We just communicated this back in October, and I want to quickly remind you of that because what we're doing comes right out of our our vision, and that vision is that in the next three years, there's a, a sense of urgency for us in this. In the next three years, we want to be a church our communities cannot imagine being without by training 500 people to live and share the gospel and by planning our presence in 30 new locations. Those locations would be things like campuses. Uh, ongoing Bible studies and ministries. That vision has kind of two parts to it. The whole thing is kind of guided by the idea we might be heading into more difficult days to live as a follower of Christ in our culture and our world. And uh, I'm under the impression you don't run a fire drill when the house is on fire. You try to get out in front of that and, and be prepared. Hey, what would we do? So if it gets more challenging, more difficult to be an individual follower of Christ, if it gets more challenging for us to gather, what, what are we going to do? Well, that vision is about putting, and I pray we never, hey, I hope you never have to run a fire drill, right? But we're going to be prepared for whatever could and might happen. So one part of that is about training and preparing you, the individual, to live for Christ in this culture. And then the other part of that is how we as an organization meet, worship, gather, minister to, care for one another. We, we obviously are known for doing that in kind of a big way here on Sunday morning. Uh, we have about right now, after COVID, we're, we're running about 1,500 on a Sunday morning. That's not including over 1,000 that join us online, so pretty large group. And we're going to continue that. We're, we're not looking to change that in any way, but we're also thinking this group of thousands of people, what are all the ways we could meet in groups of 50, 30, 10? What, what are all the ways we can accomplish our gathering and, and actually build that structure? So what we've asked our Midlothian campus to do, uh, and again, do some, do some extenuating circumstances. We're going to close indefinitely. The reason I say indefinitely is we're not done with campus ministry. We're not done with a Midlothian campus, but we are going to close that campus as far as a formal place of meeting on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. And what we're asking that congregation to do then is to get into uh, two to five. And the reason I say two to five, it kind of depends on how many sign up. And uh, Ronnie West, our, our, one of our pastors, is out there with them this morning. Started Wednesday night. We're working on it this morning to start building that structure. We're going to put them into in-home 
life groups. A lot of what we're doing here on our campus, we're not changing meeting in person uh, and life groups here, but we're developing a lot more in-home life groups. And so we're going to develop them in two to five life groups. They'll meet weekly. Some of those life groups will meet like on a Tuesday night and on Sunday morning, they'll come here to worship with us in person. Others will maybe meet on a Sunday morning for their life group in a home and then together as a group watch online uh, the, the, the worship service that they're, that's being streamed right now. So th- they'll be gathering like that weekly as a life group. And then this is where we take another step in the organization. Then we bring those two, four, five life groups together on a quarterly basis. And they gather to worship, they gather to do ministry, love 804 events, just to fellowship. But a singular life group then creates an identity with two or three life groups. And the goal is to do the same thing here because we want to be prepared. How do, we, how do we create a place for 2,500 people in all of these multiple places of, of smaller groups? So they're going to kind of be our pilot group and uh, kind of get us running and starting on working on that. And like I said, pa- Pastor West is out there helping them do that this morning. Now, again, I don't want to make it sound like we just came up with an idea of how we could do this and went and did that with Midlothian. We, we had some challenges, and it's, and it's not Buddy's passing. Buddy's passing is not why we're doing this. Buddy Ham is a campus pastor out there, one of the pastors of our church that passed away in September. Uh, that certainly aggravated the situation. What the bigger issues are a, a lease, the amount of time we were going to have to be in that lease, and, and just a variety of challenges out there that made right now not continuing at where we are, and renovating a third building in five years just seemed like financially a little bit more than we wanted to take on. So that doesn't mean we won't take that on in the future. It meant that right now it didn't seem like a good time to do that. And then, of course, with, with Buddy's passing, I think the only thing, I think we'd be doing the same thing if Buddy was here. I think the difference would be if Buddy was here, that probably would have been happening a little bit later in the year. Our, our goal is to get rolling on this as soon as possible, uh, maybe as, as soon as the middle of January. We don't have a date that's our goal. We have a we're ready to transition is our goal. And so, but we think we're going to be able to do that about the middle of January. So be in prayer for them. It's kind of a weird thing. I think they're ready. They, they saw this coming. They knew this was coming. And, uh, I think they're excited that there's something for them to step into, but they're grieving also. I know a lot of them are, they're very close to Buddy. They're grieving that still. And then now they, they feel like they're, you know, another loss. So be in prayer for that campus. Be in prayer for Carrie. Be in prayer for the Ham family. Uh, I, I know a lot of you've walked that road of losing somebody and then that, that first holiday season and, well, really any holiday season without that, that person. As a matter of fact, tomorrow is Buddy's birthday. Uh, so Friday it was Ashley's birthday. Uh, tomorrow is Buddy's birthday and just the whole holiday season. Just keep the Ham family in your prayers as they, uh, you know, as they continue to deal with this. On that note about Carrie, she actually, just in response to how well you have loved her and cared for her and reached out to her, she wrote a note uh, to the church, and it's in our bulletin right now today, and I know that about half of you said, bulletin? I didn't know we had a bulletin. 
every single Sunday. We, we never stopped having a bulletin. It's there in your church app. I believe you can find it online too, but your church app is the, the best way to get to that each week. Say, well, I don't have the church app. Okay, we'll get the church app. Uh, but it's, it's in there. I know you'd want to want to read that. She's certainly very grateful. So keep all of those things in your prayers as we uh, continue to move forward with a difficult thing, but an exciting opportunity that I really think helps our church take some steps and uh, preparing to fulfill the vision we believe God's placed on our hearts. So we're going to continue today in our Christmas series, Christmas at Luke's. And uh, we're going to be thinking today about awe. I want you to think about what you're in awe of. What makes you, what are you looking at? Who are you with? What are you experiencing when you say, boy, that is awesome? When's the last time you said, boy, that is awesome? I I made a short list. Things I'm in awe of. I'm in awe of the Rocky Mountains, particularly around Estes Park. I'm in awe of the Rhine River. Now, I don't get to the Rhine River as often as I get to the Rocky Mountains. Uh, The Rhine River, if you don't know, is in Germany. I've only been there once. I don't know that I'll ever see it again. But there is a, a stretch of river going down the Rhine. And it's just breathtaking. I mean, it's a river, right? And, and then you have these hills and vineyards on the side. It is so beautiful. But there's a stretch where like for an hour or two, you're going to pass like 25 castles. And I mean, you just, all this scenery, and then you look at these castles, and it's just, it's just awesome to take in. I mean, I said, that's awesome. But uh, so that's awesome. Uh, a full moon, But not just any full moon. I think you all know what I'm talking about here. The fall full moon. Isn't the fall full moon better than a spring? Or You all know what I'm talking about? It's it's so big in October, November. It seems like it's sitting on your trees out there. I don't know what it is about the fall, but a a full moon and a starry sky, that that is awesome. My wife is awesome. Yeah. I... Right now, I just, I just saw you over there and said, he got in trouble this week. Watch this. No, no, I did not get in trouble this week. But I, you don't know what I'm talking about. You listen, anything you're enjoying that's awesome, I, the only thing that makes it better is to be enjoying it with her. And, and so life, man, that, that's, that's the key to awesomeness right there, her. Our kids are awesome. If you want to know more about that, stop me. Please have a sack lunch. You'll need time. The Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives, particularly on the side or at the top where you're looking at the eastern gate in the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, I've been there a couple of times. I've taken some of you there to see that. You know, it's not just what has happened in that spot. It is what is going to happen in that spot that I believe makes that spot right there the most awesome spot on planet Earth. That, that is a place that is the most, I don't think it's even an opinion. And, uh, and so the Mount, the Mount of Olives right there. You know, I, I hate to almost add this, but yeah, you know, being one of 105,000 fans at a A&M football game is pretty awesome. Sometimes it's less awesome, but uh, it, 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 that, it, that is certainly awesome. And the church, and I'm a pastor, so I have to add the word church, right? No, you know, I, I really do believe, as a matter of fact, I am a pastor because I always thought the church was that awesome. And I'm not talking about a particular building or even a particular service. I think we have a lot of awesome services here. We probably have some that you didn't think were so, so awesome. 
But I'm not actually talking about that individual moment. I'm just talking about overall the church when it not always is. When it's unified, when it's passionate, when it's serving, and when it's worshiping. In a moment and throughout history. That, that is an awesome force on the earth. And it has been. As a matter of fact, that whole video about the Lottie Moon offering. That is the church. Unified, passionate, serving, and worshiping. And it's incredible. With all the bad we get, all the bad press we get in America, it's just untold the force for good that we are in our state, in our nation, and around the world. We're incredible force for good. And that, that story is not told. That, we can clap for that. Thank you. Amen. So I'm in, I'm in awe of these things. And to each and every one of these things I just mentioned, God can say, I did that. Now, I know right now you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. Okay, the moon, the mountains, I get that. But the football game and the castles, oh, yeah. God can say, I did that. We're thinking about awe today. Let's look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is our fourth week now in our Christmas series. Two more weeks to go. Luke chapter 1. This is my fourth sermon in Luke chapter 1. That's a lot of sermons for one chapter. Until you look at Luke chapter 1 and realize that it's 80 verses long. And then you might be wondering how I got through it in only four sermons. So long chapter. Let me read Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 57. Luke 1 verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy toward her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, 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 no. She shall be called John, or he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, because remember, he can't talk. He asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth, that's Zechariah's, was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear, fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth are not in the house of David, so he's not talking about the baby he just had. Okay, He's praising God, but not for the baby he just had. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy, promise to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, now he is talking about his child. 
And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And one of my favorite Christmas verses has always been Luke 179. To give light to those who sit in darkness. And in the shadow of death. That's what God wants for you this morning. Light. To guide our feet to the way of peace. That's what God wants for you this morning. Peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness. And notice this phrase. Until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And this is a long passage I just read. There's a lot there to understand, a lot to unwrap, a lot I think we need to want to appreciate, want to be able to appreciate, want to be able to respond to. So I almost feel like I owe you an apology that with all I just read, I'm looking at one verse this morning. I I just got captured and could not get over one verse in what I just read. And that was Luke 1, verse 65. Look what it says there. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And then I have where that verse is located, and then you see the the little parentheses there, ESV. ESV stands for English Standard Version. That's what I'm reading out of right now. That's what I read out of most Sundays. When you see a verse on the screen, it is usually the English Standard Version. Periodically, I read out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. And boy, I really like what the NLT did with the first part of that verse. Look at that. Awe fell on the neighborhood. I I just love the way that sounds. Awe fell on the neighborhood. That's what I've been praying all week long. God, would your awe fall on the Heights Baptist, fall on us individually, fall on us as a group. What a great thing to pray for your neighborhood this holiday season. God, may your awe fall on my neighbors. May your awe fall on our street. May your awe fall on our neighborhood. And God, may it fall through me. My words, my actions, may the awe of you come through me. You know, we know the awe of God fell on Zechariah and Elizabeth. The awe of God fell on Mary. Next week, we're going to see the awe of God fall on the shepherds and the angels. The angels have awe fall on them for God too. The week after that, we're going to see awe fall on Simeon and Anna, You may know them, might not be quite sure who they are. No, they're not anywhere in your manger scene, but a wonderful part of the Christmas story. Awe fell on them. And the passage goes on to say that awe was spreading throughout all Judea. I mean, this is how, man, prophecies are being fulfilled. Supernatural signs and wonders are taking place. Elijah, Elijah has come. That's what the prophecies are saying. That's what the miracles are saying. Elijah has come. And if Elijah has come, Jesus is coming. And they were in awe of that. And it it was spreading everywhere. So I guess here's my question. What happened to the awe? You, you, You notice the last phrase I read there. Until his public ministry. You know, he kind of disappears on us there. We say, I've got all this story, all this information about his birth, and then the next thing we're going to see, he's going to be an adult. Who else is like that? Jesus. 
We've got all this story about his birth, a lot of information about his birth, and then nothing. And then he's going to appear at the age of 30 in his public ministry. Well, what happened to the awe during all that time? Now, granted, I get it. 30 years is a long time to be in awe. But who else's birth is attended by angels? Who else's birth comes with miracles? Who else's birth has wise men and a virgin birth? Who else's birth has all this? Why are the eyes of the world not on John, on Jesus? Where's the paparazzi? Well, I'll tell you what happened to the awe. We get over it. We always do get over it. And not only do we get over the awe, but then we can begin to relate with God as, you know, God, you owe me. You, you, you owe me some awe. I'm running low on awe. You can't expect anything of me if I don't get some awe here pretty soon. Now, I doubt anybody in this room or online has said anything like I just said. But let me give you a line that almost all of us have thought, almost all of us have prayed. God, if you will just do this, then... God, if you will do something showing your goodness, your greatness, if you'll show me your awe, then I don't owe it to you before. You give me the awe first, and then. Folks, that's not an awe of God. That's a bargaining chip. Now, let me back up in this story a little bit. Remind ourselves of of how we got to where we are here in Luke 1. So Gabriel, we've spent some time with Gabriel during this, the last four weeks. He is an angel. He's one of two named angels in the Bible. And his job description, I think, would be number one attendant to the Holy Trinity. Number one attendant to God. That seems like a pretty cool spot to be in. In other words, there's God on his throne and then Gabriel. And basically, God says, go, and Gabriel goes. And that's every time we see Gabriel in the Bible, he is being sent by God to deliver a very important message. And we opened up Luke chapter 1, and Gabriel is going to Zechariah, and he is saying, you are going to have a child, and this child is going to be Elijah. You're going to name him John. And Zechariah, who we were told is a good man, a godly man, you know who said that? God said that. I would, that would just seems like be pretty cool if God were to look at me and say, man, you are really good and godly. That seems like a really good place to get a thumbs up, right? That's what God said about Zechariah. And yet, even in that status, if you will, you know, Zechariah had a little trip in his faith. And we talked about some of the reasons why he might be prone to kind of stumble in that moment and not respond with faith. And, and in that moment, and I really feel for Zechariah, but the only word I can think of, he had the audacity to look at this angel and say, prove it. Now, just from your pastor to you, I love you. If an angel visits you and says, this is what's going to happen, don't, 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 don't say prove it. Just that, that's my advice, okay? Don't say prove it. Now, he didn't say prove it. What did he say? Give me a sign. That's their way of saying, prove it. And the angel's like, seriously? You want me to prove this? 
okay, you're not going to be able to talk effective immediately. And you're not going to be able to talk until the child is born and you name him John. And of course, that's what we just read, right? That's, that's what just unfolded in the story that we read. And, and of course, there's all that confusion about his name, you know, what's going on there. Real simple, the cultural norm is that you name your children after people in the family. Karen and I did that. All of our kids, first name and last name, are named after immediate members of our family. And that's why our family is so spiritual and so good and better than all other families. So you see, you just need to try that because that's the way they did it in the Bible. No, the Bible does. We actually did do that, but the Bible does not command that. That was just the norm. Just because something's happening in the Bible doesn't mean a command. It's a norm. And so everybody was named. Now remember, Zachariah and Elizabeth are, what's a word? Old. I mean, really old. And I make everybody think, this is your one shot. You got one child. Don't mess up his name. And, and their norm, it wasn't a law. Nobody was going to jail for this. But we have norms that are as strong as laws, don't we? And you're supposed to name this child after somebody in the family. And with a firstborn son, you're really supposed to name him after dad. So they said, you, you, they just go, they go to perform this ceremony and they call him Zachariah. And so Mary's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, Elizabeth, whoa, his name's John. And they look at her like, you've lost your mind. So then they look over at Zachariah and here, his name is John. We have it on really good authority that we're to name him John. When you get something from the throne of God, you just go ahead and go with it. That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Do you know that you and I have a chance to get something from the throne room of God every single day? And we should go with it. Okay? So anyway, name name him John. And this this John is going to be Elijah. This is a prophecy that is over 400 years old. It goes back to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. 400 years ago in chronology, in your Bible, it's just a few books earlier. If you start turning backwards from Luke, you're going to go Mark, Matthew, and Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. These are some of the last words, and these last words are giving what? Prophecy of when the Messiah is coming. Look for a forerunner. It's going to be kind of a second coming, if you will, of Elijah. And, and, and so that's who this is. All these prophecies, folks, and Luke is pointing to these prophecies. If I'd made the decision to spend math, Christmas with Matthew, because remember, Matthew's the other gospel that has a, a big Christmas story to it. If we'd have spent Christmas with Matthew, we would have seen even more of this. I mean, like, literally, as Matthew tells the story, he writes three verses and says, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Three verses, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Folks, God, listen, God's called us to faith, hasn't he? Faith is not a belief in silliness. It's not a belief in myths. It's not a belief in fairy tales. It's not a belief in warm fuzzies and good things. God gives us evidence for the faith he calls in us. And prophecy is one of the biggest pieces of evidence all through the Bible. There's over 60 prophecies fulfilled about the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can date where these prophecies were written. We can date and validate how they were fulfilled. It is the evidence. All these prophecies, prophecies, I like to think of them as big neon arrows from heaven pointing at the manger. 
Big neon arrows from heaven pointing at Jesus. The answer to every prayer right here. The answer to every question you have in life right here. He's made it so that we can't miss it. He's made it so that nobody, nobody is without excuse. He pointed in a way for the whole world to see it. And John is one of these really big arrows because we're going to see John out there doing his work in ministry. And one day another person for the first day steps into his public ministry and John says, behold, the Lamb of God. John is pointing to the Messiah for the whole world to see. So this is, a, this is an incredible moment. This is Zechariah's kid who's doing all this. And is, when he says, John, his lips are loosed and out it pours. What comes pouring out? Praise. He's got nine months of bottled up praise and thanksgiving. He has seen a miracle. He's seen an angel. He's got a son. His son's going to be one of the most important prophets in the history of Israel. What a moment. So much to thank God for and praise God for. And it's not just those things. We've seen with Mary. We've seen with Elizabeth after those encounters with the angel. Man, Zechariah and Elizabeth went home. They started pouring through the scriptures they already knew, but now they knew them in a new and exciting way. Dots were being connected, and they were seeing God more than than ever before. And yet these aren't the things that come pouring out. This is, this is not what he's giving praise for. What's he giving praise for? What is the first thing that comes out of his mouth? It's not gratitude. It's not praise for the child he just had. Verse 68 and 69, he's praising God for the baby Mary's. Can you imagine? A lot of us in here have had a baby. Can you imagine in that moment of seeing that new child saying, God, I want to praise you and thank you for the baby in her. That horn of salvation. Because as excited as he is about his son, and he does give thanks for him, right? He does praise him for that. But as excited as he is, this is the Messiah. This is, this is the most awesome thing ever in the history of humanity. This is the most awesome thing ever since the fall of mankind into sin. And his awe of God right now is in the Messiah. You know, I, I, I don't know because Zachariah and Elizabeth are going to kind of trail out of the story here and we're not going to see them again. I don't know how long they lived. I'm guessing Zachariah and Elizabeth never stopped talking about this moment. Now, new parents, we always, you know, hey, you want to see a picture? You know, new parents are always talking about, I, I'm guessing they, I don't know if they lived five years, 10 years, 20. I know they were old. I don't know how much longer they lived, but I think they never stopped talking about what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced, what they knew. But somewhere we stopped listening. We, humanity, that means you and me. No, I'm not suggesting we were alive 2,000 years ago, but people just like you, people just like me were, and we just stopped listening. I mean, we, it's, just time to, it's just time to move on. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to scold you, scold me, scold us, for not staying in awe. You know, awe is an emotion. 
And nobody can sustain an emotion forever and ever and ever. You, you can't sustain an emotion from one day to the next over and over and over. That, that emotion is going to wane. Which is why it's so important we choose this emotion. We can choose the emotion, the awe of God. You say, how do you know we can choose it? Because one of the most often repeated commands from Genesis to Revelation... One of the most often repeated commands in the Bible is fear the Lord your God. That command messes some of us up. We have a hard time explaining that to others. We're not sure. Like, I mean, am I supposed to be scared of God, trembling before God? He's mad. He's angry. He's going to strike us dead. You know what fear the Lord your God means? Be in awe of him. You, you choose to be in awe of God. So I come up on a moment where I need to make a decision where I know this is a moment of I'm going to choose obedience or disobedience. Maybe it's a step of faith. And I'm going to choose based on being in awe of God. That's choosing the awe. Do you know why you and I don't choose the awe of God? Do you know why you and I sin in that moment? Because I'm more in awe of you and your response. I'm more in awe of myself and what I want in this moment. I'm more in awe of a consequence of taking that step. Folks, all disobedience is an awe of something other than God. And all disobedience leads to death and darkness. Awe of God leads to light and life. The awe of God is for you. It's for you. So I want to choose the awe of God, but we don't. I don't because I have a tendency to say so in awe of everything else. And as I said a moment ago, alluded to a moment ago, the problem's not just that we move on from the awe of God or that we forget the awe of God. It's that we start bargaining with God. We start demanding the awe. You owe me some awe. You, you, you owe me some awe in this moment or else. We'll move from bargaining with God to threatening God. Now, I doubt anybody in this room has ever said to God or else. But it is how we pray, it is how we think, and it is how we end up living. I mean, God, how, how, how do you expect me, how do you expect anybody to be devoted to you, to love you, to come to church, to be obedient, to worship you, when you didn't protect me there, when you didn't provide there, when you didn't answer this way? When you didn't do what I think this moment needed. And folks, these are real and legitimate concerns. But what I've just done is I've yielded who God is to my circumstances. God is no more than my circumstances and what I want in this moment. And so I've gone from an awe of God to actually treating him like little more than a well-trained animal. If you give me awe, then here's a treat. Here's the treat of my worship. Here's the treat of my obedience. Now, if you don't perform, no treats. That is not awe. That is nothing like awe. Which means I will stay on a path of death and darkness.
So I want to choose the awe. You know, again, I don't know how long Zachariah and Elizabeth lived beyond John's birth. But I'll bet you John, Zachariah never again said prove it. I'll bet you he, the angel, the birth of Zechariah, what he knows about Mary, he is in awe. And that awe is going to carry him the rest of the way. Now, if that's true, then would it be right, fair, appropriate for me to pray, God, would you give me a big moment? Would you give me something that I'd be so in awe of that it'd carry me the rest of the way? I think that's a fair request. Would it not be fair, appropriate of God to then respond and say, Didn't I already do that at the cross? Do I look at God's love at the cross? Do I look at his work at the cross and say, that's fine, that's good, that's wonderful, thank you, praise you, I really need that, but I'm going to need more. Hey, folks, our challenges, our problems, our confrontations with the sin of this world are real, and they cause real problems. Of course we're going to ask God for things. But do we really walk away from the cross and say, you know, I'm going to need you to prove your love again. That wasn't enough. I'm going to need you to prove your presence again. I'm going to need you to prove your concern again. I'm going to need you to prove your power again. Because while the cross is good and wonderful, it's not. I can't say where each of us is on that. I would. I don't want to look at God and say the cross wasn't enough. I I want to be in awe of God. I I want the awe that I choose to carry me the rest of the way. I want to give you three simple things. It's funny to use the word simple. I'm not suggesting choosing the awe of God is simple. But I got three simple ideas, three simple things we can do to choose the awe of God. Number one, pray for it. Now, number one should be number one for anything and everything we're doing, right? I mean, I need to, God, I acknowledge you. The awe of you is what I want. The awe of you is what I need. God, I'm not going to do it on my own. I can't do it on my own. I'm so in awe of everything in me and around me. God, would you help me? And so I yield, I pray to God. I wouldn't pray when you're getting low on awe. I would, I would pray it every single day. God, I want to be in awe of you. So pray for it. Number two, look for it. See it in God's word and in the world. Do you realize you can choose to see the awesomeness of God every single day of your life? That has always been within your ability. All you got to do is open God's word. Be in awe of his character. Be in awe of his work. Be in awe of his plans and how he brings those about. And as I focus, as I use God's word to focus my eyes on his awe, then guess what? I look up out in the world. Now I see his awe even in castles and football games. Oh, I'm very impressed by what a human can do in building that castle or in running that play. But who created them that way? 
Whose image were we created in so that we, so that we broke things down and built them up so that we researched and explored and we got smarter and smarter and figured things out and that we could do that? It's, it's God that gave us that. I'm in awe of you, God, and what you've created that could do this. You know, we think worship is hard. Oh, it's hard to do. You know, actually, I go to a football game and I praise God for how he really did design us. When we're really in awe, it's amazing the amount of money we'll spend, the amount of effort we'll get to get there, and what we'll do all day long And for three solid hours to yell ourselves hoarse, to scream ourselves crazy for a one in ten team. I've done it. (laughs) You want to see worship? Go to an SEC football game. I know there's some ACC folks in Big Ten. I've heard those are good too. Go to an SEC football game and you will be in awe that God really did create humans. To show great passion, great sacrifice, great loyalty, great commitment, and great devotion to that which they're in awe of. Third thing, last thing, we need to talk about it. You talk about what you're in awe of. You just do. If you're not talking about it, that, that, that's, a, that's a measurement you read in your life that goes, oops, I'm low on awe of God. I'm not really in awe of God. Because if we are, it always comes out. You know, everything in my list of things I mentioned that I'm in awe of earlier, you've heard all of the... I don't think I'd ever mention the Rhine River. But all those other things I'd mentioned, some of them I've mentioned so many times, you're okay if I don't mention that I'm in awe of those things anymore. You've gotten kind of over that. It's just what happens. We talk about what we're in awe. Nobody thinks that what we're in awe of is private. Nobody, if we're really in awe. Man, we share that. And you know the first place we share it? With each other. Do you know why we need church? Because sometimes no matter what we do, we're on empty. I'm low on awe of God. I'm low on prayers. I'm low on words. I can say, God, help me with my awe, but I don't even mean it anymore. And you know what I need in that moment? I need the body of Christ. I need to come live off of some of your awe, which is why, don't you love it when all these commands, the dots start getting connected? Why do you think the Psalms tell us over and over, declare his glory, declare his praises among each other? Do you know why? Because some of us in here today can't see it, can't feel it, can't choose it, and they're living off the awe that you and I have. That's why we have to gather. I talk about it. You know, if I were to describe this little boy that's going to grow up and begin his public ministry in Israel, if I was to describe John's ministry in one word, it wouldn't be the word Baptist. <laughs> I know that's what his name is, John the Baptist. But baptism was a product of the one word I would use to describe his ministry. And that word was repent. John profoundly made us uncomfortable. He called out your sins, the sins of our group. He called out the sins of the leaders. He called out the sins of the nations. And he said, repent. 
Repent. You know, I, I was thinking this week, if John showed up at the heights this week, I know he'd say repent, but what, what, what would he be saying? What would he say to me? What would he say to you? What would he say to the American Christian? I think he would say repent. You are so in awe of yourself. You're so in awe of your own happiness. You're so in awe of your own success. You're so in awe of the approval of others. You're so in awe of your identity. You're so in awe of everybody approving an identity. You're so in awe of your feelings. Look around. Where is that awe leading anybody but death and darkness? Behold, the light of the world. Behold, life and life eternal. Repent and place your awe in God. Let's pray. God, I pray your awe would fall on me. I pray your awe would fall on this church family. I pray your awe would fall on my neighborhood. God, may the cross be enough. May the cross, may I be in awe of the cross enough that it would guide how I respond. It would guide that that issue of obedience and disobedience. It would guide that step of faith. May I, may we choose the awe of God and by our choice of choosing the awe of you, may it land all over our neighborhoods. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.